but when I got past that last checkpoint was probably the hardest part of the race for me. Like that's where I was really feeling the lows and like you just have general malaise. Like you just, you're tired, you're sore, your feet hurt, you're kind of hungry, but you also don't want to eat anything. That was Scott Cooper. And this is episode 158 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Scott Cooper is a trail ultra runner from Toronto, although he's been living in Calgary for the last five years. Prior to moving to Calgary, Scott had an accomplished triathlon career and even spent a year racing professionally. Only three weeks after he moved west, Scott found himself on a Sinister 7 relay team, and as he says, the rest is history. He found himself both loving trail running and excelling in really long ultramarathons. Scott has earned top podium spots in almost every race he has done, including Sinister 7 100 Solo, Fat Dog 120, Blackspur Ultra 108K, Rivers Edge Ultra 100K, and the Calgary Marathon 50K. Most recently, Scott won the inaugural Sinister Sports Divide 200-mile race in southern Alberta, Canada's first event of its kind. The 201-mile or 324-kilometer race runs along parts of the Great Divide Trail, climbing 12,335 meters in elevation with a time limit of 100 hours. Yes, you heard that right. 100 hours of continuous human movement was possible. By crossing the finish line in first place, he established a new course record of 49 hours, 47 minutes, and 59 seconds, one that will be hard to beat. In this episode, we learn about Scott and his running background, but spent most of our time discussing everything to do with the Divide 200. He talks about his preparation and strategy leading into the race, how he managed his nutrition, hydration, sleep, and feet, and we finish up with some great advice for anyone thinking of tackling a 200-miler next year. 200 miles is still a distance that is largely a mystery to most runners. However, more and more people are becoming tempted to take on the challenge. If you are curious to learn more about what this new level of craziness is all about and what it takes to excel in multi-day continuous races, keep listening. Well, Scott, thank you so much for joining us this evening on the podcast. We're really excited to get to know you a little bit more tonight. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to chatting. You have definitely been on our list for a while, and I know I say that about a lot of people, but it's really true with you. Um, there always seemed to be something on the horizon for you that I thought, oh, maybe after that race, we'll have him on. And maybe after that race. Well, now is the time. You just completed the Divide 200 first overall, first ever, and you set the new course record for that race. Congratulations. Yeah, Thanks. Darn awesome. Um, we definitely want to get into a lot of that. But before we do, since we've never had you on the show before, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I guess uh, a really brief overview. So I grew up in Toronto, the Toronto area. Um, and uh, yeah, starting from a young age, always loved sports and always interested in running in particular, but all kinds of different things. And uh, yeah, and then from there, I went to school in Montreal for a number of years where I picked up uh, triathlon. And that's where I started getting into some endurance racing and into the endurance world. And then about five years ago, moved out to Calgary, uh, which is now where I live. And uh, yeah, once I moved out there, 
Um, yeah, kind of a funny story we can get into, but I ended up in a Sinister 7 relay team about three weeks after I moved there. It was my first trail run ever and uh, just fell in love with the mountains and trails. And uh, yeah, since then, I've just done a yeah, ton of trail running and, and just enjoying my time out in the mountains with friends. So, okay, tell us this funny story. How did you happen <laughs> to end up on a mountain relay team three weeks after moving from Toronto? Yeah, so I was, uh, yeah, I just moved here and I guess it was early June. And then I went out for um, the weekend before the race. I went out for beers with a couple of my friends that I knew from back in Montreal. And then while we were out, they got a text from someone on their team uh, that was doing about a 23, it was leg um, five of the race, um, that they uh, they ended up having a stress fracture that weekend. So they couldn't do the race anymore. And then they're like talking back and forth of like, how are we going to find someone? It's so last minute. And I was like, it's only whatever the leg is, say 23 or 25K. It's like, it's only 25K. I'm sure I could do that. And yeah, no background in trail running. I ran off the side of a trail on like a bike path here and there, but nothing in the mountains. And uh, yeah, and then so all of a sudden I signed up and out camping and did the that leg of the race. And um, yeah, just had an absolute blast. And yeah, fell in love with the trail running after that. And how did it go for you? Was that the farthest you'd ever run before? And uh, no, so I'd done as long as a marathon up to that point. So I'd done longer runs oh, and like, and I had a lot of experience with running, but just not on trails. Um, and uh, yeah, and then like the team, they were pretty ambitious with the, the expected uh, projected time they wanted me to run. So I was a little bit nervous about that, <laughs> but held my own. And uh, yeah, and so it went great. I didn't roll or break my ankles, which was a huge win. And I'm sure I came back dirty and bloody, but uh, yeah, it was a ton of fun. So you, you mentioned uh, in the early parts of your athletic career before you got into trail running, a triathlon background. And I know you've had quite a accomplished triathlon background. Give us a bit more detail around that. When did you start doing triathlons and what are some of the highlights there? Yeah. And triathlon was something that interested me since the year 2000, which was when Simon Whitfield won the Olympics in Sydney, um, which for, I think anyone in the triathlon world, and even a lot of Canadians will remember that uh, day was pretty epic. And uh, yeah. And then when I got into to university, it was um, still in the back of my mind. And my uncle was actually doing a charity triathlon um, and then said, Hey, like, do you want to come do this with me? And I was like, sure, absolutely. So it was a sprint triathlon and same thing when I did a sprint triathlon and I've almost died. I, I was the first or the only person in the, the water that didn't have a wetsuit on. And like, I was just way over my head, but, and I remember I got stuck trying to get my shirt on and off and transition. And, uh, anyways, it was a bit of a disaster, but I had just an absolute blast and thought I can't imagine doing anything longer than this. And then, uh, yeah, I got back to, to McGill, which is where I was going to school in Montreal and joined the triathlon club there. And um, yeah, every year there was just always that next challenge. So it was a sprint triathlon, then an Olympic, then a half Ironman. And then, um, yeah, by the sort of later years when I was in university, I was doing uh, typically about two two Ironmans a year um, and maybe two or three half Ironmans. And uh, yeah, just loving it. Wow. So what stands out to you as a highlight from your Ironman career? Yeah, so from Ironman, I was um, lucky enough to qualify and do um, the world championships in Hawaii a few times, um, which uh, for yeah, anyone in the triathlon world is kind of yeah, that holy grail. You're in Kona and running on LE Drive is the really famous finish of the race. And um, yeah, just being able to have that experience and, and just the excitement and, you know, you're just surrounded by all the 
crazy fittest people in the world in this tiny little town in Hawaii. And it was just yeah, an unbelievable experience. So yeah, that was great. And then just, of course, all the friends that I met along the way. Some of my really good friends are people that I've trained for countless hours um, on the back roads outside Montreal. On. <laughs> okay, so that was kind of the start, I guess, of where you really developed um, endurance and an affinity for going longer than, you know, a few hours, whether it be mm-hmm. um, on the bike or on the road. And then, forgive me, what year was it that you moved in, uh, to Alberta and started doing the Sinister 7 on the relay? Uh, that would have been 2018. 18, okay. Yeah. So, so things did rapidly accelerate for you, or I should say get long and dirty for you from there in the trail community after that. Uh, you signed up for Sinister 700 Miler in 2019 and did exceptionally well there with a first place finish. So, you know, what happened from 23 kilometers on the trails to deciding to do 100 miles a few, you know, a year later? How did that evolve? <laughs> yeah, it's a great, great question. And probably a little bit of insanity in there, but uh, we'll, we'll leave that to the side. But um, yeah, I think like when I go back to even when I was talking about doing the sprint triathlons and building up to Ironman, um, it was always a really interesting thing for me, just kind of pushing my own personal limits. So being able to see what I was capable of doing and like jumping over those scary ledges of, of you know, just a really intimidating distance, whether that's an Ironman and a triathlon or a, or a hundred mile race. So um, I did that uh, relay with Sinister 7 at the start of the summer in 2018. And then I actually did um, the Black Spur Ultra at the end of that summer. So that was 108 kilometers and I was in Kimberley, BC. And then that one, it was, again, a disaster because I hadn't really run on trails before. And I remember about 50 kilometers in, like every step felt like knives in my quads and the downhills just punished me. And after the race, I could barely walk. My whole thighs were bruised, uh, bruised up just from muscle damage, had nothing to do with falling or anything. But uh, yeah, I had the bug. And then I thought, well, you know, I could do 108 kilometers. I wonder if I can do 160. And then, uh, yeah, before I knew it, I signed up for the um, the Sinister 7. And then that summer did the, I think they call it this, or, and I think it still exists, but the Sinister Triple. Um, cool. So did the yeah, Sinister 7 Ultra, the um, Canadian Death Race, and then the Black Spur Ultra again. Holy smokes. Now I see, I'm, I'm just staring at a list of some of your <laughs> other uh, trail running accomplishments. Um, and I see Fat Dog here and I know Fat Dog has a variety of distances. What distance did you do at Fat Dog? Was it the 120? Yeah. So I did the 120 mile there, which was the longest I'd done previous to uh, the Divide 200 miler. So I was actually there that year. I actually passed you on the trail and, you know, you going on the little <laughs> lollipop section much further ahead of me. I'm sure you do not remember. It was the dawn of the second day. And uh, I remember just thinking, like, he looks so fresh and running, just gliding along the trails after being out here for, you know, almost 24 hours. What, you know, was there anything about that Fat Dog 121 experience, which was the longest distance in time on feet? to date probably for you to that point mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that like did that set a seed for going even longer I'm going to jump ahead a little bit like when did you start thinking about 200s the seed was probably already in my mind at that point for trying a 200 um at some point um I think the first thing that got me interested in it was I watched a couple of Courtney DeWalter videos which I'm sure is 90% of people getting the 200s experience but uh, just watching her do it and, and what she could accomplish just like blew my mind and thinking about such a length. So, uh, yeah, I, I saw a fat dog as a bit of a stepping stone to uh, to get there. So 
something, especially the the running overnight, because any previous race that I'd, I had done, I was always finishing even in the 100 milers, say one or two in the morning. So you never really have to deal with sleep deprivation. And that just became one of those next boundaries of, again, I like just kind of exploring what the body is capable of. And that was just the new or the, the, the next step, I guess, of sure, I can run all day when it's sunny and, and nice. But what about when you get into the first night or the second night and you haven't slept in days? Like, can you keep running then? Um, so that was kind of the motivation through there. So you didn't want to just run a hundred miles, like really, really slowly and take into the second <laughs> night to do it. You said, I got to do 200. That's so funny. I'm looking here though at your, and it just seems like even from your storytelling here, it's longer, 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 but I actually see a Calgary marathon 2022 and 2023 here. How often do you dip down and do a, a short race, like a marathon? Yeah, just just only a marathon, and it's a fifty kilometer, so it's still a little bit longer than a marathon, so it counts as an ultra. But um... yeah, so um, in terms of road racing on the Calgary fifty k, the um, yeah the first year that I did it was in two thousand twenty one, um, and that year in the spring or sorry in the winter time I tore my ACL in a ski accident, um, and then the spring of that year in May of that year I did um, an ACL reconstruction surgery. And then the 50K race was later that uh, summer and into September. Um, so then that became sort of a target for mine just to be able to focus on rehab and physio and have that goal on, on the horizon because trail running I wasn't allowed to do just because of the instability of it. Um, so that brought me back to road running, which was probably the first road race that I had done since um, the Atlanta Marathon, which I think was in 2012 or 2013. Um and yeah, and then from there, it just, it was a fun event and a fun race. And then, so I did it in 2022 and 2023 um, as well. It must feel like a sprint though, like a, a 50K. It, it, it is awesome. I, I think my favorite part of it is that like, usually I get back home and then like my wife and I can go for brunch or whatever. Like it's 11 in the morning by the time you're back <laughs> home and showered. And it's a very different experience than 200 miles where you're two days later getting home at 11 a.m. and <laughs> have that same experience. So yeah, it's great to only have three hours to run. <laughs> so let's touch on this this injury theme here for a little bit. I just want to highlight the fact that you tore your ACL and had ACL construction surgery and has still been able to not only run, period, but perform at a very high level for you know days on end. Like you're your surgeon. We, we should put a link to him in the show comments. That must have been a pretty amazing reconstruction. How did your rehabilitation go? Yeah, the rehab was great. And um, yeah, I was able to get the surgery done in Banff, which um, just because of national ski teams and stuff, they do a million knee surgeries. So um, I was in and out of the operating room in like 20 minutes, maybe uh, walked amazing. out of the hospital and everything. It was yeah, it was incredible. And um, yeah, I was on the bike just spinning in the basement within about three days after surgery. And um by the four week mark. Um, so I was doing sort of everything that I could to keep things moving and muscles activating. Mm -hmm. And by the four week mark, I had the check in with the surgeon then Dr. Butchko and he, um, uh, he had asked me, Oh, like, have you started running yet? And cause he knew that I was a runner. And I said, no, um, I thought I wasn't allowed. And he's like, well, if you feel good, just do it. And then, mm -hmm. so then that, that, that day I was able to start running again. So, um, sure, there were bumps along the way. There was a few times I pulled my hamstring because um, they take the graft out of your, mm -hmm. your hamstring for the ACL. So yeah, a couple times I pulled my hamstring and, and some bumps along the way. But uh, yeah, generally it was more with physio. They were trying to hold me back from progressing to the next steps too soon. 
Um, I was yeah. just passing all the strength tests and agility and everything very quickly, but then we just had to wait for the actual tissues to, to heal up. Um, so I think my physio was terrified the whole time of what I was going to do to myself, but it all worked out great. It all worked out great. And since then, I haven't had any um, negative uh, sort of repercussions of it. I had That's to take a, a winter off of skiing, but other than that, like, yeah, I got right back into running and I was doing a ton of cycling just to build up strength. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And so now well, it's good just fitness hopefully... level, you know, probably served you well, you know, the more fit you are going into something like that, the quicker you can rebound. Let's talk for a moment before we get into the divide here about the dislocated shoulder incident that occurred in 2022 during Sinister Seven. Um, this was a mere, I don't know, what, six weeks, maybe eight weeks before Fat Dog? <laughs> um, uh, less than that. Yeah, it was four weeks. Four weeks. Four before. weeks. Okay. My timelines are <laughs> off. Right. Four weeks. So, you know, you seem to perform quite well, injured or not. Uh, and, you know, tell us a little bit about that. I was actually at the aid station uh, that you were at uh, after falling and dislocating your shoulder and uh, got the disappointing news in almost real time. What happened there out there almost at the end of the race? Yeah, so with the um, Sinister 7 race, because the with the 100 mile, um, you end up catching up to people doing the 50 mile race by the end of it. So um, it was about 100 and... Uh, I don't know exactly, but say 135 kilometers in or so. And um, and I was doing well in the race. I was in the lead and um, just kind of cruising on a downhill. And I, I went to run around a couple um, that were walking in the 50 mile and then just happened as I stepped off the side of the trail, I kind of clipped my, my toe on a rock as happens a million times in every trail runner's life. Um, and then as I was going down, I, I know I, I thought about it and thought, oh, I'll just land on my shoulder uh, or like on the side of my body and absorb the impact and I'll hop back up because, again, I've done that a million times and then landed on my shoulder. And as I got up, I was like, oh, that feels kind of funny and looked down and my, my one shoulder was probably four inches lower than it should have been. And oh uh, so then I, the people behind were like, are you OK? Are you OK? I was like, yeah, I'm fine. But I just dislocated my shoulder. And then they saw and they kind of freaked out. And at this point, it was about five kilometers from the next checkpoint, which was the last checkpoint in the start of the last leg. Um, so the the guy out of the two of them, I had asked him, and this was 100% based on what I'd seen in the movie uh, Friday Night Lights, which is a football movie where <laughs> one of the players dislocates their shoulder and they like rip it in on the sidelines. So I was like, I saw this in Hollywood movie, but let's try it. So he grabbed my arm and then just pulled as hard as he could. And I kind oh of tried to twist to see if we could pop it back in. Um, but unfortunately we oh. couldn't. And then, so they were like, oh, we'll go get someone. And at this point, again, I was in the lead. So I, and I wanted to keep going and knew if with shoulders, once you get them back in, like it doesn't hurt at that point and there's, you know, it's pretty, pretty much okay. Um, so then I just kind of grabbed my arm and I kept running down the trail and just figured <laughs> I would try and hopefully run into a physio or a someone that might be able to help get it back in. Um, and after about two or three kilometers, I ran into a woman that was a wilderness first aid responder. And then, um, yeah, she got me on the ground and we tried two or three different uh, methods to try and get the shoulder back in, but just couldn't get it. Probably just because of all the 
bouncing and jostling and you've been running for 15 hours so your everything's tense yeah. um so we kind of walk jogged our way back to the the checkpoint at that point and um got in and the medical team there i was trying to get them to put it in and they just said no it's too high of risk um in case there's a, a nerve or a, a an artery or something gets mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. gets pinched in there so yeah they pulled me out unfortunately and uh yeah and so yeah it was a bit of a disappointment but uh yeah my wife was there as well and we had the conversation of like this is just a race and your arm's probably more important than that so yeah so went to the hospital and ended up taking them 45 minutes of the hospital to get it back in so it was yeah it was it was pretty out of there but um yeah but they got it back in and like i said once the the shoulder was back in I had to take a few days off running um, just because the bouncing uh, made it sore. But then after that, I could start um, just kind of my typical recovery after a hundred mile and then start getting ready for the fat dog race. So it didn't really limit you during fat dog. I mean, you finished second overall, really strong, strong finish. You didn't notice the shoulder was an issue with all the no, no, but and everything. Yeah, by that point it was fine. I like the oh, one uh, the one thing that did bug me was um because I the physio um had told me like you really can't re-dislocate it or you're going to be in some deeper trouble. Um and then so because of that I was a little bit more tentative than I would have been on downhills, which ended up um taking mm-hmm. a toll on one of my hip flexors that really cut into mm-hmm. the the last half of the race for me, but um yeah, the shoulder itself was fine. So that wasn't the limiter. Okay, so this is a, a maybe a good time to transition into talking a bit about the Divide 200, which is a race that you you seem to be very good at recovering, but this is when you almost have to recover as you're running. It's so long. So I guess my first question to you is why? Why 200s and why did you choose the inaugural Divide 200 to be your first? Yeah, those are great questions. And um I think the the why of why to do it um again as I as I mentioned it's really just to see if you can um and I knew going in pretty confidently that I could hike 200 miles for example like it would take a while but I knew I knew I could do it but I really wanted to go and see if I could run and you can't run everything in a trail race but run the majority like anywhere where it was runnable be running um for 200 miles so that was probably the why and then in terms of why the divide 200 um, I'd actually signed up for the, uh, well, I did the lottery and I got into the Bigfoot um, 100, uh, which is down in the States. Yeah. And then, uh, so I was all excited for that. I, I got in and and uh, started planning and we were planning the, the trip and everything. And uh, yeah, and then they announced the Divide 200 and I'd had uh, such great experiences like the Sinister Sports Group. Um, does a phenomenal job putting on races. They're all just like top notch with, you know, everything from volunteers to organization to flagging to food to, yeah, just every single thing. So I knew that it would be a really well uh, run event. Um, and then I just thought it would be great as well to do something in, in my backyard as opposed to going to the States. Mm-hmm. So logistically, it's a lot easier, but um, also, yeah, then you're just, um, you're in with the community that uh, that we all know in Southern Alberta. So that was the, the, the reason to switch over and uh, yeah, and yeah, so I dropped out of the Bigfoot one and just focused on divide. Okay. Well, these distances all are very incomprehensible to me. 100 miles, 200 miles. I've heard Kim say many times, like, you can't even comprehend 100 miles until your feet have gone that far. And now this is double. So how do you even prepare for something like this? Like, how do you get yourself, whether physically, mentally, like, how do you get yourself ready for that kind of a challenge? 
Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And um, I don't have a running coach. Um, I've done some coaching myself for triathletes and runners over the years. So I kind of just make up my own program. So coming into this, it was a pretty big um, learning curve of figuring out what, what to do and how to make all this work. Um, and I think my biggest takeaway is a lot of it you just can't train for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if I reflect on the training that I did, it was pretty similar to what I would have done for a hundred mile race. So I'd done the semester mm-hmm. 700 miler earlier in the summer, and I really just recovered from that um, and then started um, a similar build up to the, uh, the 200 mile. Um, with the one exception is that there was one weekend, which was my last big weekend, where I did a um, one long run during the day on a Saturday. And then as my wife went to bed, I got on all my running gear and then started a long run at, um, I think I started at 9 or 10 p.m. Um, and then to run another 40 kilometers through the night and then woke up in the morning and then did another long run that next morning. So trying to simulate <laughs> a little bit of that sleep deprivation, running tired at the nighttime, um, on trails. So that was probably the one thing that I, I did a little bit different. Um, and then I guess the other side of it was just trying different foods. So typically I would rely mostly just on gels when like at fat dog for one twenty the 120 mile. Um, I ate spring energy gels almost the entire race and that was just fine, but I knew that I had to mix in some solid foods. So we tried a couple things, um, and some of my longer workouts leading into that. So those would be the specific things. And beyond that, uh, the last thing that I would mention is just like, I think it's whatever, 15 years of endurance racing, mm-hmm. that that was the training that, that got me through that race. It wasn't necessarily anything that I did this year. Um, it was just, you know, every single lesson of every single thing that's gone wrong over the years. Um, when you're out running for 50 hours, probably 90% of those things are going to happen. So every time there was a problem, it was just like, oh, like I've had this before. And then this was the solution. So whether it's, you know, sand in your shoes or like a little blister Mm -hmm. forming, or should I change my socks or keep my socks or Mm -hmm. my stomach's a little off? Like, should I eat more, eat less? Should I switch to just fluids? All those little things just all came together and pacing, like getting the feel for that. Maybe we can go into all that in more detail, but, um, for sure. Absolutely. We want to know it all because this is still very much an unknown genre or distance in running. Um, there's so many elements, like you said, that one doesn't even have to consider when doing, quote, shorter races, such as 100 miles or less. Um, I'm wondering, like, did you go in with a kind of a, a strategy in mind of how you wanted to execute with regards to potentially naps, you know, uh, nutrition? And if so, did you stick with that strategy? Did it all go out the window once you started the race? Yeah, for sure. And so for naps and nutrition, 100%. So nutrition is probably the easiest one because it went as sort of I had expected it would. Um, but typically what I do, my wife is, is usually my, my crew and she's the, an all-star crew. I can't thank her enough. She's the, the biggest person in my corner and yeah, it gets me through these races. But typically what I'll do is I'll prepare just like Ziploc bags that have all of the nutrition that I need from one checkpoint to the next. Um, and then, so that's just all, everything calculated out again, it's, I think nutrition's a little bit different for everybody. Um, but just kind of knowing the amount of calories and carbs that I need to take in. 
Um, typically that's like, uh, again, I spring energies, awesome sauce has been my, my, yes. my holy grail awesome uh, for the last couple of years. <laughs> um, it's just like eating applesauce and it Absolutely. reminds me of just like comfort food as a kid. So it's exactly <laughs> what you need when your stomach's off. But yeah. um, so I, I relied mainly on those and I had probably one every 45 minutes to an hour. Um, and then mixed in with like Gatorade for drinking and um, uh, some different electrolytes. Tailwind was on the course, so a few different things there. Um, but I had that all very like scheduled out. And then when I, and the thing that was a little bit different is with a race this long, like you want a bit of solid food and you want a bit of variety. And then so where that came in was when I would meet my wife, Vanessa, she would have um, like hot soup waiting for me if it was three in the morning and she knew I was going to be cold and whatever. Um, so we had to have some noodle soup ready to go or she was getting um, just like Tim Hortons bagel sandwiches. And then so I'd be able to scarf down a bagel sandwich or a quesadilla, um, just a variety of different things there. And and what we found was a good approach and has worked in other races is it's she'll kind of set it up at like a buffet for when I come into the transition or the checkpoint. Um, and and then, you know, because you never know what you're going to want and what's going to sit well. So, you know, you start eating something and you just like, oh, this is gross. You put it down and then you start something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that that kind of worked uh, worked out well. And again, I didn't necessarily have any issues um, through the race. One little trick that I've I've used um, since about last year was using um, gravel or ginger gravel. Sorry. Yes. So just like the concentrated amazing. ginger. Yeah. Um, which I find makes a big difference just to be able to keep food down. Cause uh, as you can imagine, when you're eating for two days straight, you're just sick of eating at some point. It's like, you don't really want to put anything in your mouth, but with the gravel, uh, ginger gravel, I find it really just like takes mm-hmm. the edge off and keeps you somewhat motivated to put that next gel down. Absolutely. Well, you know, oh, there's so many different directions we can go here. Let's just do a bit of a race breakdown. So just uh, I'll reiterate, we said this in the intro, but you finished 201 miles, I think it was, in just under 50 hours, 49 hours, 47 minutes. So just under 50 hours. To put that in perspective, that's pretty close to like two 24-hour 100 milers, right? Um, which is an, a pretty respectable distance for or time for most average people doing 100 milers. You were able to maintain that kind of a pace, a 24-hour 100-mile pace for 200 straight miles. So like you said, this wasn't just a hike. You were doing some running. <laughs> you had to be running out there. Um, how did the race go for you? Break it down for us. You know, first day, second day, how did you, how did it roll? How it rolls, yeah, for sure. Um, so the uh, the race was a it's an interesting course setup because it's um you do a lot of the hardest terrain in the first half of the course. Um, so I think everyone kind of knew that going in, and the pre race meeting they made that very clear. Um, but it starts with a flat road for um like a flat dirt road for whatever it was, maybe three or five kilometers. And so that, you know, we were just kind of a little group cruising along there and um, just running at a very conversational pace. And then it was kind of once you got up onto the ridge lines um, where things started breaking up a little bit. Um, so yeah, we went up on that first ridge um, and I was running kind of back and forth with a few different people at that point. Um, but there was a bit of route finding and we were losing track of some of the, uh, the, the course markers out there and everyone's scrambling to their GPS watches and trying to find our way but we we made it through and then by the time we got to the first or the second checkpoint I guess it was which was about um 30 something kilometers in um that's where I started running with someone Sam Dickey who we ended up spending 
an awful lot of time together over the next couple of days. But um, yeah, from that point on, like we we ran and worked together, which was really nice. Um, we were kind of at a similar pace and had similar pacing strategies. So um, yeah, I think that uh, once we started running together, it was just trying to focus on not... Um, I think the mindset I had was that I didn't want to use any muscular strength. Um, I just kind of wanted to be running, like just your legs running through the motion. Like you're not pushing, you're not like you're not stressing yourself in any way. You're just relying on that efficiency and more like those tendons and ligaments that you've trained for decades to just be springy and get you through. Um, so yeah, so we were just cruising along, and um, on the flat sections we would be running like a pretty good pace. Like I think is. It was like five minute kilometers through some of those. And um, yeah, so in the context of a race like this, yeah, pretty, pretty yeah, quick. Yeah, pretty good pace. Yeah, so moving along and the first kind of hiccup was that we, so both of us ran out of water. I did before Sam did, but on, um, there was, uh, so we did this big ridge line. There was a long flat section and then there was another uh, couple ridges and mountains that we had to go over before we ran into our, the first checkpoint where we would see our crew, which was at about 68K. And uh, so, yeah, there was probably two hours where I was relying on maybe 100 mils of, of fluid to get me through that. And I had a little backup. I, I like um, uh, doing having summit Cokes when I'm in uh, races. Oh, yeah. So I keep yeah. a little Coke, uh, Coca-Cola in my backpack. And then when I get to a summit and, you know, you need that little bit of a boost. So I had a, my one summit Coke and maybe 100 mils of electrolyte to get me through the, the end of that section. So that was a little bit rough. But um, yeah, by then we were we were already behind schedule. It was a lot harder on the start than we thought it would be, but got into that first checkpoint. Um, about probably 6 or 6.30 p.m., kind of re refreshed, got change of shoes. And at that point, yeah, we decided to, to work together. And um, Sam and I, so we'd just kind of say, okay, like we'll do a five-minute break or 10-minute break at this one. And then just like we'll wave at each other and get going. So, yeah, so we were making good time then. And then got off to the next section, which it got dark um, over that next section of trail. But it was a pretty easy, it was just kind of like rolling to flat terrain on single track. So it was, it was pretty nice getting into the evening. Um, and then we got into our first night, which is where it starts getting, you know, you're kind of into the thick of things when you're running overnight. Um, but it started with a bit of a road section, which was nice. So just um, when you can be, see those miles clicking off. Um, I found one thing that was really important in the race and that I, I was really happy went as well as it did is I never thought about how far we had to run. Um, I was always just thinking about when's the next checkpoint, uh, whether that's like the intermediate ones or when's the next time we'll see my wife and, and be able to like re refill everything. Um, so I never thought of a distance, say more than 30 kilometers at a time, which is very manageable when you're used to, you know, running long uh, miles in the mountains. So yeah, we had a good good time overnight. Like we'd have our own highs and lows and just kind of like stick with each other through that. And when someone's having a low, it's like, all right, well, we'll just walk for a little bit. And, uh, you know, have you eaten? Have you drank? Like, do you want a ginger tab? Like, what is it that we're going to we're going to be able to keep moving with? So and then, yeah, at the end of that, that leg, we were really cruising. We were going quite quick, which was great, again, just to knock off the miles. But I think both of us were starting to notice that our heads were not as um intact as they were whatever it was 18 hours earlier so uh, we decided to both try and nap um so we had kind of made a plan that we'd both close our eyes for say 10 minutes we'd aim for like a 20 30 minute um i think it was 35 minutes or 40 minutes at the end of the day but um to try and close our eyes and uh, i did i 
had zero luck of any sort of sleep. I think oh, Sam no. said that he got a few minutes of sleep in, but it was at least nice just to like lie down with your eyes closed and, you know, change socks. And um, like I got all wrapped up in like a sleeping bag in the back of our SUV and, you know, just was cozy and it was a good kind of reset. So uh, yeah, Sam just got a few minutes of sleep. I got none, but once we got back out and running again, um, I think we both felt like new new men and ready to to keep on pushing. Um, and at that point, we had Sam's first um, pacer running with us. Uh, so that was great just to have like a, a fresh fresh set of legs to to be there and someone a little bit more chippy and, and chatty to, you know, <laughs> keep us entertained. And um, yeah, and then so we yeah just kept cruising along. And then so by the time the sun was rising is when we got to that section near uh, kind of looping around the back of um, Crow's Nest. Uh, which was beautiful. So we ended up in a um, like a really nice area coming over, uh, I think it's called Racehorse Pass and then to Window Lake. Yeah, Window Lake. And yeah, it was just absolutely beautiful. And that was back onto the the Divide Trail. And um, again, we were, we were cruising along, like everyone kind of had their own little aches and niggles and tiredness and all these different things going on. But again, we were working really well together, which was nice and just, yeah, kind of sticking together as a, as a group there. And so you um, mentioned the divide trail, if I may interrupt for a moment, for our listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with what, what the heck the divide 200 is, can you just describe, you know, a bit of the terrain and the significance of running along the continental divide? What is the meaning of that? Yeah, so it's the continental divide. So if you go to either side of this divide, that's where the water would either go to the ocean or back out towards sort of the, um, the central part of North America. So um, you're, it's all ridgelines. It's all yeah ridges and mountaintops. So I think, I don't know what everyone's GPS had something different. They said it was over 12,000 meters of elevation gain, but I think from what I saw, it was probably more about 11,000 meters. But um, yeah, like you're doing... You're consistently doing, you know, anywhere from three to eight or nine hundred meter climbs at a time. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, some pretty significant elevation. And then all that uphill, you also have to run that downhill, which can really shred the legs. So it was a good mix of everything. So there was some dirt road, um, there was single track trail, there was double track trail. Yeah, just like a bit of bushwhacking in there or just route finding across a ridge where it's just a big open plateau at whatever, 23, 2400 meters up. So it's, uh, yeah, it was a little bit of everything, but absolutely beautiful. And the cool thing about it, um, going back to earlier in the race when we were on the top of a mountain called Table Mountain, which was right before checkpoint three, which was the first point we met our, um, our crews, we could see Crow's Nest Mountain, which was probably i don't know 70 or 80 kilometers away like it's this tiny little thing way off in the distance and, <laughs> and you know you're we going were, there yeah we were looking at each other saying like so we're gonna run there run around <laughs> it and then we have to still run back to where we are now and like all of this is gonna happen <laughs> in the next day and a half so a little bit overwhelming but we got a good laugh out of it so that was good but um well that's yeah. good that you only think of it in 30 kilometer chunks at a time then <laughs> oh yeah yeah. To, eh? yeah yeah well, can I go back to something you said earlier? So I get the need to have trail naps and, and rest your feet and everything, but I am just trying to picture you wrapping up in a sleeping bag and getting all comfy in the back of your vehicle and having to, like, how hard is it to get out of that and start running again? Not very. I think like, uh, you know, uh, in the context of a race, um, like I'm a 
competitive person and I had had my own competitive goals that I knew that I wanted to keep running. So it was never, never really a question. So typically, and we'll get to it, but there was a, on the second night I tried sleeping as well. And then for both of them, like when I couldn't sleep, eventually I was just like, well, this is just wasting time. Like, why am I doing this? Like, and then I would just get up and, you know, have a little bit of soup or whatever, maybe yeah, drink a Coke or a ginger ale or just get some, some sugar in me. And then, uh, yeah. And then I'd be all set to go. I guess in many ways, it's probably harder if you did sleep. Like if you did fall asleep for 10 minutes or something, then it'd be maybe a bit harder to get back up. But also paint us a little picture of what the conditions were like. I mean, I'm sure it cools off overnight, but was it hot during the day or... Like, do you feel like soup, for example? Uh, yeah. You know, how, how cold is it? <laughs> yeah. And so I would say that we were beyond lucky because especially uh, in September in that area, um, we could have like a little bit of anything happen. It could be a snowstorm. It could be 30 degrees. Like it could be all over the map. But yeah, it was perfect. It was uh, during the afternoons. I think it was 20 degrees or something like that. Like I said, it was hot just because we were dehydrated that first half uh, first afternoon. Um, and then overnight, the first night, it was supposed to be single digits, but it ended up being, uh, my wife told me, I think it was like mid-teens, like 15 degrees or 14 degrees or something. So when you're when you're running, yeah. it's absolutely mm-hmm. perfect. Like we didn't, I had brought so much warm gear, like pants and jackets and like puffies and toques and all this yeah. stuff and didn't end up using any of it, at least on that first night. It was quite nice overnight. So um, well, let yeah. me tell you, the third night there was frost in the morning. So you're lucky. Yeah, it you got colder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's benefits of not spending too many nights out in the wilderness. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so that first night was, yeah, it was fine. And it was usually just like when we got started again was when you'd be really cold. So gotcha. when you got out of that car that's been had the heater blasting and you're, you're in a sleeping bag, you get out and pile on all these clothes. You're like, oh, it is really cold now. And then you get a kilometer, two kilometers down the yeah. road, and we'd just start peeling off layers and huh. shoving them in our pack, and we'd be good to go. But as long as you kept moving and kept running, like it was really the perfect temperature, at least the first yeah. couple of days in that first night. Well, I don't think you guys could have had better weather conditions. Like there was not a cloud in the sky for the whole week. Mm-hmm. Um, the nights were cool, but they're always going to be cool in the mountains. Um, it didn't rain, I don't think. Did it rain at, at any point in the course for you? Uh, not for me we had a couple like um like spits of rain um sort of as we went through that racehorse pass section Mm -hmm. um but Mm -hmm. no like nothing's nothing drenching anyways no yeah and nothing significant nothing that you had to think about like oh should i put a coat on or anything it was just like a few drops and we kind of looked up like oh is it gonna rain and then it was sunny again so it was fine Okay. Well, continue yeah. on with your story. I'm not sure. Where did you yeah. leave off? Kind of morning? So, yeah. So I think, yeah, morning. we were at this point, we were um, probably late morning, um, and which point we were coming back to uh, checkpoint, I think it would have been eight, um, which is starting to get back towards Coleman. So we'd done sort of this big loop around uh, Crow's Nest Mountain. Um, there's a, it's kind of like rolly, it's part of the Sinister Seven course, but rolly, flattish terrain. Um, where we were both moving pretty well um, and uh, and getting through that. Uh, one of the like big falls or like quote unquote big falls I had during the day was like right as we were getting close to town and someone videotaped it. So it wasn't, wasn't, <laughs> wasn't good for the ego there, but luckily Sam and uh, Andrew, the, his pacer helped me back up and we kept just brushed off and kept moving along, which was good. But um, no yeah. Shoulder then, dislocation this time? No, every, every joint stayed in its socket, which was <laughs> nice. always the goal. Um, yeah. And then anyway, so we were running back through town and then at that point, um, 
uh, I guess when we were getting back to the next checkpoint, that was the 200 kilometer mark. So for both of us, it was kind of getting to the longest that we'd run before. Um, and uh, yeah, Sam really wanted to sleep. Um, so we kind of had chatted going in and I'd said, I'll take a bit of a longer break in, in the transition and, and then maybe just check in when I'm ready to go and see where you're at for sleeping. And if you're about to wake up, I'll wait. And otherwise, maybe I'll just get going. And that was kind of our plan. Um, and then so, uh, yeah, so took a break there, maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then I'd eaten a bunch of food, refilled everything and I was ready to go. So I asked his crew and uh, Sam had just gone down to, to take a nap at that point. And I think he was planning 10 or 20 minutes of sleeping. So didn't really want to wait around. So just kind of said like, yeah, let him know, push hard, try and catch back up. Like I'll, I'll start out slow on this next section. And um, yeah, but then that was at that point, yeah, 200 and two or something kilometers in and then that was the first uh section of just truly running running by myself um which and you was, were leading the race at this point yeah yeah when, so we were well we were through the whole the thing race. but <laughs> leading alone now um yeah. which how like that must have been a moment like you're the first person to pass through on this course that has never been ran before uh you don't have a pacer with you at that point Correct. Nope. I know all runners were, were required to have your, your GPS watch and the course was flagged. Did you ever have any concerns about going off course or did you just, uh, no, it was pretty good. Yeah, I was yeah. running pretty confidently. Yeah. I, I knew that the start of that section, they had trouble with people that were pulling flags off. But um, yeah, anyways, like I, I knew the GPS would work well. And um, again, like the sinister races are always super well yeah, flagged. So I, I didn't have a lot of concern there. And it was still daytime. So I started that leg uh, probably at uh, maybe four in the afternoon, something like that, three or four. Um, so it was still like very bright out. So it was, yeah, it was okay for trying to, to find my way. And um, yeah. And then, so I just kind of got into a rhythm. It was nice. Um, like when you're running with someone else, like you're pacing off of each other. And like, like I said, sometimes one of us would be feeling kind of down and then the other person. So like, it's a little bit more variable with pace, but when you're by yourself, you just kind of put your head down and, and push through the miles. And that was the longest section um, between two checkpoints. So it was also uh, a bit of a, you know, a, a difficult thing on the brain for that because it was about a marathon worth of running. It, it wasn't a ton of elevation, but a pretty long section. Um, so I remember thinking like, I just got to get through this one. And I knew I was meeting my pacer at the end of it. And with when I started it, I was hoping that I might be able to make it to the next checkpoint before dark. So then that was my motivator of, mm -hmm. as I started getting tired on an uphill, I'd be like, no, if you, like, if you switch from hiking to running, you're going to get through that a little bit faster. Maybe make it back to the checkpoint for, um, uh, for, for sundown. So I didn't quite make it. I was maybe 15 minutes too late. But uh, yeah, that was a good section, though, of just like, yeah, doing my own thing. Um, it ended with the only... Uh, or only a river crossing that I experienced that you had to walk through. Like there was no way of tiptoeing over rocks or a bridge or anything like that, but it was literally right before the checkpoint. Um, so up until then, I've been changing my socks at every checkpoint, but I'd kept the same shoes the whole time. Um, and then, so nice that was that. the point. Yeah. yeah. So that was the point where I switched shoes. So that was the only shoe switch for the day. Um, and then of course, switch socks as well. How did your feet fare? You know, they say there's the big three for surviving 200s or running them well nutrition management sleep management and foot care <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. I don't know if you would add anything to that list but how did your feet um fare 
Um, the one thing I would add to that list is chafing from my experience. Okay. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no such thing as too much Vaseline. Um, but uh, yeah, so my feet, this was actually probably the best my feet have ever fared in a race of any distance oh. in the trails. Like usually I always come back with black toenails and blisters everywhere and it's just a nightmare to wear shoes for a week afterwards. But um, the big thing was just change. I'd never changed socks in a race before. I'd always just put on one pair of socks, one pair of shoes and just hammered through. Um, but I think changing socks every time, uh, every time that I saw my wife was just enough to change where the hot spots are and the pressure points of different socks and like maybe a slightly different material and all those little changes. Well, like so you I, have a variety. You don't just stick to like, do you wear in gingies at all or do you wear normal socks? No, I had a little bit of everything. I had like compress sport compression socks. I had some old cycling socks that I just like wearing because they're comfy. Um, it was, yeah, it was literally everything. I think I, yeah, I had whatever, five or six different pairs of socks, like not the same at all. <laughs> um, but uh, so yeah, your, feet, your feet fared well, but not well enough to be like a foot model or anything at the end of this, because I do think I saw you make an appearance on, on Ren's Toes, toes. <laughs> Instagram account. Yeah, that was that was fresh off this morning. I, I lost my big toe, so or big toenail, not my big toe. Yeah. Um, but uh, and that was actually a toenail from Sinister Seven earlier in the summer, so it okay. had it had blackened up and was ripening over the last couple months. And the uh, the two hundred miler was just enough to tip it over the edge. But uh, yeah, so that one came off. But other than that, yeah, all my toenails were were intact. Um, wow. So speaking of Ren, when did Rainier join you? Yeah, so Rainier joined me at um, the, it was about 240 kilometers in, in, so that was right after I did that river crossing into that checkpoint, oh, okay. um, which was the, uh, and it was kind of a, a funny one, I'm usually like pretty cheery and upbeat the whole time, like I'm out just having fun at the end of the day, like it's so great to be able to push your body like this, and that was probably the one checkpoint where I was a little bit grumpy, because the, uh, my wife couldn't drive the car close to the checkpoint, and some stuff was in the car, and she had some stuff like ready at this chair and I was just too tired to like connect the dots of like well we could just go to the car and get the things I needed and anyways but we all figured it out so I had to like as a starting point to Rainier be like this is not what the next 84 kilometers is going to be like like and then we got into joking and stuff and having a good time right away but um yeah so he joined me then so he was uh and like such a such a trooper like a being a, um, a pacer and these sorts of things like for him like I've, I've been in the rhythm of running and like sure I'm tired but like I'm totally in the zone but for him it was like 9 p.m he has to throw mm -hmm. on a bunch of running gear and then run just all night overnight hoping that like this person you're running with isn't gonna pass out or start hallucinating yeah. crazy things on the trail like it's <laughs> just like a little bit of like you get thrown right into the lion's den but um yeah right from the great get-go like we started running together which was great and um with his well and this is <clears throat> we should just mention that we had him on our show in episode 149 i believe if you want to go listen to rainier and melissa chat about their running experiences so this is the same the same run so he yeah yeah, he joined and when you join as a pacer without having been running and you just start cold at 9 p.m you don't have all that adrenaline and the endorphins and all those hormones that are just surging so yeah. it is a little bit of a yeah throw like thrown into the kettle kind of situation but uh how did the night go for you guys it was great and i i think and this may or may not be a real 
memory of mine, but I think he was sipping a Red Bull as I showed up. So I, that might be his, <laughs> okay. he might his, have had secret, a little his secret sauce. Yeah. yeah and, uh, and then like, and what I had told him like leading into it is that it's not like I'm going to be running crazy fast. Like by the time he met yeah. with me, it was the longest I'd ever run in my life. And I'd been running for at that point, say 30 hours. Um, so like, yeah, it's, you're not, you're not sprinting or anything. So I think it helped him just ease into it, but, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, but it was great. We just like, we worked, uh, you know, just, I told him like, I just want to run. So like the goal is always to run. Um, so that was kind of like the motivation talk and whatever is like, as long as we're running, like we're moving forward quickly. And even mm -hmm. if it's slow, doesn't matter, but just keep that running motion as much as we could. Um, and then that's where we crossed over the divide again. So there was, um, I think it was, it's called North Kootenai Pass. Um, so we got up there and uh, yeah, it was just nice to get to the top of the mountain. And we knew that there was a long downhill, super long flat section. And then you just had to go back over the um, the divide to get back into where the finish line was. But, and you um, go into BC at that point. Yeah, so we were crossing into yeah. BC. And so, yeah, we get to the top of the climb and we're excited. And we're like, yeah, we got through this climb. And it was the most atrocious downhill that I've ever done oh, off of that. So. Really? And I think talking to everyone, like everyone really struggled with it. It was crazy steep. It was a bunch of softball sized rocks that were just everywhere. So there was no option but to, to be on them. And again, at this point, it's you're probably 260 or 270 kilometers in. So your legs are not happy with you. And um, so like even, yeah, Ren was falling down the, the slope. And in, in my mind, I'm like, if he's falling, like I, I don't stand yeah. a chance. But he kind of like we navigated our way down for a kilometer or two. And then we got into this like gnarly bushwhacky type trail and after that it eventually opened up which was nice and we were able to start running again but um yeah for us that was um it would have been probably midnight or so that we were going over the pass so it was pitch black so it was yeah adding that extra element in there of um yeah. of trying to run through the night and how did they even mark that session like did you have to rely more on your gps through there or did, did they have some flags stuck in between rocks here and there. Yeah, they, there was tons of rock, uh, tons of flags, and like, and it was oh, a very okay. clear like shoot down. So it wasn't oh, just like okay. an open scree field. It was like a oh, kind of narrow yeah. shoot. But then there was so many trees on the side, you couldn't just like go off to the side to to go mm. through that way. So it was pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was pretty pretty obvious, which was good. And yeah, and then we got back onto the this uh, kind of like a long dirt road essentially that was slowly rolling. Um, we got to a little checkpoint, and from there it was. Uh, 15 kilometers to the checkpoint where we'd meet my wife and um that was the one time so at this point it would have been probably one in the morning for that last 15k section and then that's where the head really started getting a bit loopy like i was going okay to so what side. did you hallucinate did you see anything yeah. crazy <laughs> okay tell yeah us. so so at the side of the road i stopped to pee and i was just kind of like looking at a tree in front of me and then the the leaves just started all like waving and moving but there wasn't a breath of wind so like at that point I was like okay my head is not perfectly straight right now and and I was kind of like uh spinning like dizzy spinning and in, in circles as I was standing there so told Ren I was like I, like there's this isn't like an emergency but I just want to let you know that I'm starting to get a little bit dizzy not when I run but like if I just stop and also these leaves are moving and then so just kind of like <laughs> let level set at that and he was he was great he was super calm just like okay cool yeah like i guess we'll just keep moving just let me know if anything changes and uh from there like there were um we ran into a herd of horses which was 
which like actually happened. Yeah, oh, okay. actually happened, which was, <laughs> wow. and I thought like maybe I was hallucinating. And so I was just like, like these are horses, right? And he's like, oh yeah, no, there's there's horses walking by right now. And um, <laughs> But then it was slowly things like there was a lot of cow patties or horse patties at the side of the road. And I would think that they were just like a rabbit or a, um, a raccoon or something. And then you get close and you'd see it was just like a big pile of poop. Um, and then I started, there was little bushes on the side of the road. And then I started thinking some of them were coiled up boa constrictors. Like it looked like a kind of like um, a wound up snake. And then again, you get close. And as you got closer and like really focusing on it, then you'd see with your headlamp, oh, that's just a tree. And then mm-hmm. the one like true vivid hallucination was like when we were almost at the checkpoint, um, there was a sign that was in line just with like a little rise and a hill in the distance. And then for whatever reason, to me, it turned into a woman walking a dog. And then so I kind of like stopped and I was like, Ren, like, that's weird. And then he, he's like, what's weird? Like, there's nothing there. <laughs> and uh, and I saw this, yeah, this woman dog walking and my wife was there with our dog. So then I like, I'm sure my brain was trying to oh. connect that because I knew I was getting close to the checkpoint, but saw this and then, and it was like vivid. Like it was, you could fully see the figures and everything. And then as I like, once he said, no, there's nothing there. And then I like really looked closely and then it just kind of like wisped off and dissolved. <laughs> and then there was just... Just, yeah, this sign that had a reflector in the corner, which is what I thought the dog's eye was. Um, and then my brain had just taken it from there. So at your that brain point, see what it wants. you were wanting to see your dog. And your yeah, I, I just wanted to cuddle with my dog and my wife and have a little snooze. Um, but anyways, yeah. And then so at that point, I was like, okay, like at this checkpoint, like I have to lie down, yeah. like hopefully I'll be mm, able to sleep. Okay. Like this is mm-hmm. for sure needing that like uh, mental reset. Cause at this point it would have been three, about three in the morning. And then, so I'd been up for uh, probably third, like been racing for 39 hours or something like that. Or does that mm-hmm. math work? Out? No, 43 hours, 43 no, hours. Yeah. yeah. 43 yeah. hours. Um, yeah. And then, so I hopped in the back of the car and then, and like, it was like NASCAR pit stops for some of the stuff. Like we'd show up, like the full bed was made, like, yeah, all the heaters were blasting. That second night was cold. It was like, mm. I don't know if we saw much frost. There was a bit of frost on like some of the, the grass and stuff, but it was definitely chillier. So hopped in the back of the car and I'm like, yeah, this is it. I'm going to fall straight to sleep and then just like get 10 minutes and then be ready to go. Um, And uh, it was a really weird, I wasn't able to sleep, but I had this really weird experience where if you remember viewfinders, they're like these little plastic toys that had a little button on the side and you click it and then like different Uh pictures would go through. So when I closed my eyes and I was in like kind of this half sleep state, it was like looking through one of those where I was getting like one second flashes of different pictures. So, and it would be completely random stuff. It was like, I saw like an old timey car and then I, it was uh, my wife and I and our dog on a beach. And then it was like a BMX biker that was doing a backflip out of a jump or something like it was all these like completely different things just like yeah hitting me with these flashes but I I more or less the whole time knew that I was still in the car I knew that I was just lying down in the back Mm. of a an SUV and yeah and then maybe 10 minutes of that and then uh, 10 or 15 minutes and then kind of got up again crushed a bunch of soup I think I had a Red Bull at that point I was like I'm, I'm gonna start needing some caffeine in me and uh yeah this was your made... first time using caffeine other than the summit coke yeah some summit summit cokes throughout for sure yeah. um and I think I had I might have had one Red Bull as well when um I had met started with Rainier when he started pacing me um, but other than that, yeah, it was just the Cokes. Um, I was trying to, 
I really wanted to see if I could sleep um, if possible. And yeah. I knew if I had too much caffeine, mm-hmm. I'm quite sensitive to caffeine. Yeah. I, there would be no hope. But at this point, like, especially it was like, well, I'm, I'm in it. Like there's no, there's no more sleep from here to the end. It was whatever. Yeah. And that was the last major checkpoint where you saw your crew right before the end of the race. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think it was 40 kilometers or 48 kilometers or something from the finish. So at that point, you know, you're finishing, you know, you're getting through it. And it's just like, yeah, just take the caffeine. And um, through the rest of that section, I had a couple um, of the uh, the Morton caffeine gels. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So a couple of those, which were nice, just again, to keep a little bit of caffeine up. But um, yeah, other than that, not much caffeine throughout the day. Days. So did he pace you right through to the finish? Yeah, so he did 84k, which was which was pretty awesome. Not a lot, not a lot yeah. of people are willing to again start a run at 9 p.m. with a half delirious, very tired runner and run for 84 kilometers. But his uh, his mentality was he was going to try and entertain me with as many dad jokes as he could over the time. Nice. So it was yeah, nice. it was great. We had a great time. That's fun. And at yeah. this point, are you aware? Like, where is Sam now? Like, is he chasing chasing you, or like, do you get updates about other people? whereabouts or are you like yeah I've got this in the bag I can just kind of jog it in no yeah so he like he had me worried the whole time because again it's a race so like you're you're in that race mentality and the so it's good if you're leading a race but the downside of leading a race is you don't get updates so you never go through a checkpoint Mm -hmm. and say like how long ago did so and so run through here right so you're like you're only relying on information from hours ago so for example, like when I got to that first checkpoint after leaving Sam, where I met Rainier, I had no idea how far behind Sam was. He could have been 500 meters. He could have been 10 kilometers back. Um, and then so by the time we got to the this checkpoint and I was getting ready to go after that little attempt of the nap, um, the previous like uh, um, intermediary checkpoint, they had just radioed to say that Sam had gone through there. So at that point, um, we knew that he was about that 15 kilometer section behind kind of plus or minus. Um, So we didn't know how fast he'd run it. We didn't know like what that meant his time. We didn't know if he was going to sleep when he got to that uh, checkpoint. So you don't have any of that. But like we kind of worked out. Um, I'm a, I'm an engineer was the, my background. So I'm always very analytical with times and calculations and all of that. Trail so math. <laughs> yeah, doing a bunch of trail math and, um, my trail math was better than Rainier's, which is something that we were joking about as I was <laughs> so far into my, my couple of days, but, uh, yeah, started running the math and thinking like, uh, calculating paces. So what I want to try and do is hold under six minute kilometers, for example, on the rest of this flat section. Um, because like in a worst case scenario, I knew that meant that Sam was going to have to be running based on that information we got would have to be running like 430 kilometers, which mm. at that point in the race, like is very unlikely. So then it became like, can we keep this pace to be able to make sure that no substantial gap will start closing? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we it was kind of like incomplete information and we're like, mm-hmm. okay, well, there's probably a plus or minus 30 minutes to what we think, but like, yeah. Well, again, and I- even the information. So to put in a perspective for those that maybe can't picture this, I was out crewing. So I was one of those people dot watching for, you know, several days and the runners did, you did have spot or in reach trackers on you, which would update every third, sorry, 15 minutes, but it wasn't always perfectly accurate. Sometimes it would update and the runner would be way off course. And the next time it would update, they were right on course. So you kind of had to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, not to mention this is very, very remote areas. There's no cell service. There's no Wi-Fi. So even to get these updates on your phone, you have to be in an area where there's cell service. 
And this very last checkpoint that you mentioned seeing your wife with the dog hallucination or women with the dog hallucination, they did have an, um, uh, the, the Elon Musk Wi-Fi thing. What's that called again? Oh, Starlink. Starlink, right. The star, a Starlink there. So you, we did have Wi-Fi access there, but incomplete information that wasn't always accurate, but was also not just potentially a few hours old, but could be several hours old if the last <laughs> time you had Wi-Fi was here. <laughs> and then you drove yeah. around to your runner because for the crew to get to that last checkpoint, it was about a three and a half hour drive from Coleman around to Fernie and then back up, you know, logging roads as the crow flies, as the runners were going, it might've only been, you know, 35 kilometers for, yeah. for the people driving um, significantly more. So very uh-huh. interesting time to keep track of runners, trying to get half of an accurate idea of where they were on course. So yeah, what you're describing there, Scott, just wanted to put that in perspective a little bit. It was almost like a whole second job keeping track of where people were. Oh, but you sure. would be almost more like running scared, right? It sounds like mm-hmm. that position that you're in is like, you really don't know. So you have to just keep moving forward as if he's right, right there. Possibly yeah. on your you tail. To. Yeah. 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 And I've, yeah. I've been through enough races where I think you realize at the end of the day, like you're going to regret a lot more if you didn't push that little bit harder and you just stayed complacent and someone passed you then yeah. pushing that a little bit harder and maybe you blow up, you know, whatever it happens, you're going to want to take that approach that like, if you knew you could have done a little bit more, you would have wanted to do yeah. it. So, um, yeah. So anyway, so that kind of kept me pushing through that section. And then, um, and then the sun started rising again, which was awesome. Um, the, the sunset every day was depressing and sad and you were just <laughs> knowing that you had another whatever 10 hours coming up of pitch black and seeing nothing but 20 feet in front of you with the headlamp um but then the sunrises were just amazing because you get this boost of energy and like it would start warming up and uh that little bit of sunshine so we uh yeah with uh we had to kind of climb back up um to get to the top of the divide to get back over into the ski resort where the finish was and um same thing that i'd said earlier when i was running with rainier i'd like once we hit the uphill, I was like, all we have to do is run. So it doesn't have to be fast. Don't have to be doing anything crazy, but like, we just have to run. And um, for sure, the first section, there was a checkpoint like halfway up the climb or there's a bit of a climb. Then we reached a checkpoint and it was the rest of it. And then I'd really told him like, I want to go fast until that checkpoint. And that was from a strategic standpoint of knowing that would be the last place that Sam would get information on us. So if he was oh, really close. Okay. If yeah. he was really close, if he knew he was closing gaps, then that would be motivation versus if the gap was increasing, then like, you know, um, right. so a little bit of, a little bit of mind games there, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah push, push hard to there. And then as we started getting over the pass, um, or I guess it was around that checkpoint I, I sent, um, with the inreach cause I knew my wife was back at the ski resort where she'd have reception by that point. So I sent her a message to see if she could update us on where Sam was. Um, and then when I got that reply that, and like he was significantly behind, like, so it, she didn't know exactly time gap or anything like that, but it was kind of like with only whatever it was, 20 K to go, like as long as I kept moving, it'd be fine. And then that's where the mindset switched from trail math of staying ahead of Sam to trail math of, uh, can we still break 50 hours? And what does 50 yeah. hour? 50 I wondered hour... if that that kind of goal was in your head. You were so close, but you did yeah. it. Yeah, but we did it. Yeah, we did it. And then <laughs> tell um, us about when... your finish. 
Yeah, and then so yeah, as we were trying to get through this, and Rainier on his watch had a an estimate, so it would take like whatever our average paces were on different types of terrain, and figure out how long it would take to get to the finish, and like it just kept hovering above and below fifty hours. So he was trying not to like freak out about it, but I was like, no, I'm pretty good with this calculation thing. I think we'll be fine. But um, yeah, once we got over the top of the pass, then it was all downhill, and then it was uh, a flat few kilometers to get to the finish line so i knew just if we got over that we would be in good shape and i would say out of the whole race uh, like i felt quite good the whole race in terms of energy levels and like legs weren't too too trashed like nothing like that but when i got past that last checkpoint from there to the top of the pass was probably the hardest part of the race for me like that's where i was really feeling the lows and like you just have for lack of a better word just like general malaise like you just you're tired you're sore your feet hurt um you're kind of hungry but you also don't want to eat anything you should be drinking more but you don't want to drink anything like it was just all those things kind of coming together but um yeah just focused on one step ahead of the other and yeah like i said just try and run as much as we could run um so we got over the top and then that's really where the sun came out and like there was the leaves of the time of the year was starting to change so you have like this yellow glow through the sunrise and uh yeah so that was just the sun on the face really really got us going again and then from there it was just cruising down um so yeah there was a little bit of picking away through some some rocks near the top of the descent but then after that it was like a very smooth trail so there was nothing technical um so yeah we were running a pretty good pace like before lunch yeah. yeah and like and at that point yeah once we got over the pass and like knowing that it was downhill and flat knew that it would be under 50 hours as well so um yeah kind of pushed like nothing crazy but just made sure that it was still a good pace because again you never know what's going to happen in a race and uh yeah and then cruised around to the finish line and uh yeah crossing the finish line was um and this is you know they always say like if you could bottle up the finish line feels of these uh these really long races like it's just a flood of emotions like i was crying a little bit i was laughing i was like yeah i just wanted to like give my wife a big hug and like it was just there's so much that's coming into you and um yeah but it was just such a a sense of um uh just like completion and and you know when you when you set out to do something and especially really hard things like when you do get to that finish line um it's just that much sweeter of of knowing you know i feel like i always get these flashbacks of like all of the in this case like all of the years of racing like i really think this was the culmination of yeah decade and a half of endurance racing of of all those things and thinking back of like injuries like we talked about a couple but i have metal plates and screws in my shoulders i broke my c-spine like i've had concussions i've had pretty bad injuries through a lot of these sporting things and it's like you kind of flash through all those and think of where you got to and think about that first sprint triathlon where i almost died and then you're doing a 50 hour 200 mile race so it was just all that flooded in and it was yeah just an absolutely incredible uh incredible feeling can't imagine how that must have felt so will you ever do another 200 no <laughs> I'll just, that was pretty clear there. <laughs> quick and oh, clear why? about it yeah so yeah so i think again like from the perspective of why i did this um was to see if I could and to see if my body was capable of it and um, you just kind of explore those limits. So I've achieved that. And I'd say out of, you know, 
when I reflect on the race, there was probably a couple hours that I could have shaved off from some quicker transitions mm-hmm. and different things, but who knows what that would have done for pacing. And, you know, there's a lot of other factors, but uh, again, reflecting on it, like I did what I set out to achieve and then doing another 200 miler. I don't necessarily know what the target would be because it's impossible, I think, to have a perfect race in something this long. There's just so much time. So many things are going to go wrong that um, I was really satisfied with how well um, myself and my crew, so my wife and, and Rainier, like the three of us really worked through a lot of problems and struggles out on the trail and did it well like everything all the all the solutions worked um that uh i feel like it'd be kind of like a dog chasing its tail like maybe i could do one faster or do one somewhere else but like yeah kind of also what better way to leave it than you know you walk satisfied yeah there are races longer than 200 miles does do those intrigue you multi-day races or backyard ultras anything like that yeah, so I've done a backyard ultra. Um, I did one um, in Kelowna during sort of the COVID years when we were all locked down, and it's an interesting format. And and you know, I'd never say never. It was uh, it was an ex- experience for sure. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, maybe something like that. But I, yeah, I, I at the right now, I I don't envision doing one in the yeah. near future. But um, yeah, and then the the multi day races, I I really like the idea of doing of like doing everything all at once, like the 200 miler. And I guess like you could look at something like the Moab 240, which would be longer, mm-hmm. like a race mm-hmm. like that would still be interesting because it's like, you're still continuously going. Um, yeah. I know that multi-day stuff has its own challenges because you sleep and then you get stiff and sore mm-hmm. and you have to try and get going mm-hmm. the next day. Mm-hmm. But to me, the real challenge is like, can I start and finish this thing? And like, how quickly can I do it? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so it maybe be something like Moab 240, but um, yeah, at the end of the day, it is a, it's a huge time commitment and um, it is. like it's, yeah. it's, they, it's cliche, but it really takes a village to do this sort of thing. And um, yeah. And then, so it's a burden on family, friends and all that sort of thing. And uh, yeah. And uh, again, I think I've achieved what I wanted to achieve out of this and it was a great experience. So yeah, and we'll never know, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, no plans for anything longer next year for sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, given that this was the first year of this race, do you have any advice for somebody thinking about doing it next year? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I would say, what would be the big piece of advice? For sure, take your time doing a lot of vert. Um, if you yeah, didn't have the opportunity, if you live in a flatter area, like find that local hill that you can do 50 reps of to be able to get the elevation in because um, it is a lot of up and down um, for sure. So that's something that would be uh, important to consider. Um, I think logistics, like really work out with your crew um, to know... Um, like Kim mentioned, there's sort of this long section where you have to drive for three hours or three and a half hours and then immediately turn around to get back to the finish. Um, like there's things like that, that it's just, it's a lot to consider. And I think having your crew just fully knowledgeable, all dialed in, like that's going to make your day easier. Um, and beyond that, like I'd enjoy it, like enjoy the views, enjoy the fun. Like I I know a lot of it becomes suffering and the, you know, it's kind of like, uh, yeah a focus of endurance sports of like how much the struggle is but i think it's also important to to 
just like really appreciate the beauty and again the great divide trail is an amazing trail it's really well up kept and and just like the mountains they're absolutely gorgeous it's an area i hadn't explored before so just yeah make sure to enjoy those those highs because there's going to be a lot of lows um, but, <laughs> but take take the time to enjoy the views on the top and um yeah and just stick, stick to your plan the best you can and I think this would be for any 200 miler, but expect everything to go wrong. And <laughs> and if it doesn't, like you'll be happily surprised. And that's great. Right. Yeah, yeah. There, <laughs> there you go. All right. So there's no 200s in your immediate future. What's coming up for you um, in the next running season? Do you have some plans already? Or are you still deciding? Yeah, still trying to figure that out. Um, I still have one more race this year, actually. So I'm doing, oh, okay. um, well, I'm hopefully doing the 50K Road World Championships in India in November. Oh, um, And then so that's based off of the race that I did in uh, in Calgary earlier this year. And um, right now there's a visa issue between India and Canada. Um, so it's yeah. political tensions. So right. <laughs> uh, we're not we're not 100% sure we're going to be able to get into the country. But if we are, then I'll be doing that race to um to round out the end of the season and then for next year um a little bit up in the air uh have some ideas floating around um, potentially doing like canyons doing the 100 mile there and um you know maybe one of those bigger uh bigger u.s races or look towards utmb or something like that yeah, i was but, gonna uh, say maybe get yourself a spot at utmb at canyons <laughs> yeah like that would yeah. that would be if i did canyons i would for sure be the goal but um yeah, yeah. we'll just kind of have to wait and see it's uh the end of the year it's always you have a million ideas and you're so yeah. excited about the next season but you kind of have to let everything simmer and settle and just uh, uh yeah reflect yeah. like the divide was only two weeks ago so it's, yeah exactly uh, it was not the, that the long wounds ago. are still fresh <laughs> yeah no kidding i feel like it takes me one or two weeks after a marathon i can only imagine after a 200 miler how long it takes to kind of consolidate and process it all so uh if we did want to follow along with you uh do you have a social media channel or anything that we can point people to yeah, so Instagram is uh, the social media that I use most. So uh, it's Scott Cooper Ultra um, is my my handle there, and um, yeah, I usually post race updates and you know maybe some stuff with my training and my stories and, and different things like that. And um, yeah, and I tend to have people that will reach out, especially things after big races. People ask for advice and and um, you know any sort of questions that they might have, and I'm always happy to to help um, support anyone. I had someone the other day that was just doing their first trail race that reached out and had a couple questions. So I'm always excited to to motivate those uh, those new trail runners and the experienced all the same. So yeah, feel free to to DM me and I'm happy to answer any questions. Excellent. That's very gracious of you. And if anybody wants to keep updated on his toes, there's always Ren's toe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's always great updates over there. It can be gross at times, but just it's, uh, yeah, it's oh, part I've of the been package. following along for a little bit, and I'm like, okay, this is um, hitting too close to home. This is like what my feet look like. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for coming on and just breaking the race down and and processing it maybe a little bit with us here as we're recording tonight. Uh, yeah, it has only been two weeks and I imagine there's there's still some thoughts and some memories and things that will come to you over the next few. But you've probably inspired somebody out there who's listening to give this race a try for next year. And it did definitely uh, cover some amazing part of our country. So congratulations on your amazing execution and finish of that race and good luck with everything that's coming up for you in the future yeah thanks so much i really enjoyed this conversation if i can leave with just like one final thought is um i think my biggest takeaway from this race and like what i'd like to share with people is like go out and make sure that you challenge yourself like we live in a very 
cushy world where everything's ready for us, everything's very comfortable. And I think it's really important to push out of your comfort zone from time to time and explore those limits because not only do you learn a lot about yourself, but um, it can really, uh, yeah, really just help you understand that like, yeah, limits are self-imposed. And if you really want something, you can go out there and do it. So if you're, uh, if you're on the fence of deciding, should I do my first 5k or should I sign up for this divide 200 next year? I'd say just do it. Cause like, what's the worst that's going to happen. Um, you're going to have a great experience and, uh, and you're going to learn something and you might just surprise yourself of what you're capable of doing. Mm-hmm.